Hey, Robert. It's good to see you. Hey, Ron. <laughs> so, um, Robert, myself, and some others are embarking on this uh, this new project, Ingenuism, which we'll be talking about today. Uh, but before that, before we get into what it is and 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 how how you got to it, um, it's still a little bit of just background. I mean, Robert and I know each other, God, for <laughs> since uh, 1993. We're pushing 30 years. Almost 30 years. Almost 30 years. Makes me feel old. Um, but when we both were hired by Santa Clara as finance professors um, and landed up having offices across the hall from one another and not only did all about your research together, but also became really good friends. We landed up starting a business together uh, in, in, in the financial realm that today has evolved into a, uh, our hedge fund. And um, as part of thinking about the future of the hedge fund and what we'd like to do and what we'd like to do within the financial space, we started thinking, or really Robert suggested this idea around ingenuism that's really focused uh, on, a, on an area which we haven't really focused on uh, as investors, but that Robert's done a lot of thinking about, which is technology, progress, innovation. So maybe tell us a little bit how you, how you came up with this and your thinking over the last, really, because I remember we were talking in the 90s <laughs> about this kind of stuff, but it never really developed into anything concrete but you've been doing more thinking since then. Yeah, and I got interested in how technology companies create so much value back in the 90s. When we started at Santa Clara, Apple was like going out of business and their market value was less than the value of their Cupertino headquarters. It was a time where you know, there, there wasn't a lot of excitement about technology in general and Apple in specific. And then over the next eight years, that completely changed. You know, once the web became widespread and you started to see new internet companies, it just went nuts. And initially we were both very skeptical. Like a lot of people, could it be that big a deal? Uh, we see a lot of enthusiasm in the market that ends up not being justified, but it was an exciting time and we did you know, do some technology investing and both in funds and, and in individual companies. And I felt like at that time, we sort of figured out the code of, of how Silicon Valley does produce incredible wealth. And I, I started to become a convert. And in the early 2000s, I did a research project where I looked at all of the dot-coms that got funded in the 90s because it was all you know, tech bomb and everyone thought it was a big waste. And you look at the way venture capital works is there's lots of waste, there's lots of dramatic failures, uh, but there are a few winners that totally swamp that, that dominate the uh, total equation. And so I went in and actually looked at every single dollar that went into these uh, e-tailers and dot-coms and then the results. And it was kind of shocking that you know all the failures included, and this is not including Google or Netflix, any company that hadn't gone public yet, uh, there still is about a 25% return on all those dollars. Now it was concentrated. Mo most people lost money, particularly if they invested late, yep. but there was something magical happening uh, even during the frothy times. And I you know, it kind of felt like we had it figured out. Uh, I started teaching it at Santa Clara in the MBA program. It was a, a done story. And then in the mid 2010s, you know, after the financial crisis, particularly around 2016, 
the story started to feel like it wasn't quite the whole picture. Uh, and particularly by 2018, you know, at this point, Apple is a, a trillion dollar company. It, it was it was different. Like what it, it had happened in the 80s and the 90s had been impressive. But what was happening at that point it was just unprecedented. And so I started to look again at, you know, what's really going on. And our work, you know, had always been the basis for what we did in, in the investment management area. And so this work, I thought maybe there's something we could do in the investment management area, but really I was more curious, like what is going on here? It's really amazing. And I don't really get it. So in what sense is it unprecedented? That is what's unique about the last 20 years in terms of just the size of the wealth creation as compared, let's say, to you know, to IBM or to the 19th century or to the first auto companies, you know, is, is it parallel or is it truly unique? It really is unique and it's unique for two reasons. Uh, one is just the magnitude of the biggest successes, except for AT&T, back when AT&T was given a monopoly on telecommunications in the United States and had a global presence. You've never seen a company as impactful as Apple in terms of the number of customers, the market value, the and, and I'm talking about this relative to the total pie. Like you look at it relative to GDP, Apple is a bigger deal than IBM was at its peak. It's not quite as big a deal as AT&T was, but Apple doesn't have a government-sponsored monopoly. And AT&T was unique. Even IBM was unique. There was no other company that was doing the same thing. But you know, Apple. 20 years ago was it there was no longer at risk of going bankrupt but they were a five billion dollar company and today they're a two trillion dollar company so they've been around for 50, 45 years maybe and in the first half they created five billion dollars worth of market value and then since then they've created 2.2 trillion dollars worth of market value it's something that's different and it's not just apple it's google you know microsoft has, has done this Facebook has done this. Amazon is an incredible story. So there's a whole cohort. And then even if you move down to the Zooms of the world and the, the Snapchats and the Airbnbs, these companies have created $100 billion each in market value over a decade, you know, from zero to $100 billion, something we've never seen before. So what changed to make it possible? So you know, we saw these companies or a lot of these tech companies start out in the 90s and they, they grew they grew pretty fast, but not as fast as they. But suddenly there was an inflection point and there seems to be massive amounts of growth. And it's it's the companies you mentioned, but then there's a whole there are hundreds, maybe thousands of smaller companies that are growing significantly, some of which will become the next Googles and the next Amazons some of which will fail, but there's, there's an unprecedented, I think, number of startups and, and, and companies out there. What made all this wealth creation and new technology really possible? Well, that was the core question when I was trying to figure out what else is going on. And it seemed like it was probably the internet. You know, the internet and the smartphone were the two big things that had changed between 1990 and 2015. Uh, and so I, I really wanted to look at it more at a holistic level of, okay, what would happen if you had a world where suddenly everyone got connected by something like the internet, where we had access to all of the information that was being created and not years later when it gets published in a journal, but basically in real time. And I started playing around with that. Uh, I 
took a, an academic approach to it. I, I went back and looked at Paul Romer's Nobel Prize winning stuff on endogenous growth and the importance of ideas to progress. And there was some of that that, that seemed like, oh yeah, obviously it's, that's the story. And then there was others that it seemed like a, a typical macro model. It was a little simplistic and, and not what we were seeing in Silicon Valley. And I read, you know, Deirdre McCloskey and Matt Ridley and some of the other people who have talked about how progress happens. And it just sort of coalesced into that what we got out of the internet was everybody got connected. And it just fell into place because we, we know, like in our experience, we know that when we get connected to other people's ideas and their thoughts and their skills, that we suddenly have the possibility to create way more than we can individually. And so what I'm saying is that what's different today, and it is, you make a great point that there's a thousand companies that are doing this, and that was never the case. It was always a few big winners, but now there's a whole cohort of companies that are taking advantage of everyone else's progress and all of the technologies that are being developed together to put it all into this mass of innovation. And it's only possible because they can see what other people are doing and they can collaborate with other people. Yeah, and learn from other people's mistakes and successes and, and, uh, and do that at speeds that one imagined in the past. Because in a sense, this is a phenomenon that's always existed or at least certainly existed since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. It's just, I think, the, the case you're making is just that the speed and the size of the effect, because the number of people being connected is massively different. The Industrial Revolution, we had telegraph and only the West, the Western world. And it, now we have the internet, the speed of light really, and all of humanity, it, you know, almost, well, 8 billion is an exaggeration probably, but somewhere around five to 6 billion people are connected. Yeah, and you know, you're in Puerto Rico today and I'm sitting in Silicon Valley and we can work together like we were together. And that's never been the case before. It wasn't so, the case 10 years ago, five years ago, difficult. That's why it's an inflection point is, you know, we thought we were connected with the telegraph and we were in a, in a really important sense. Uh, but then the telephone, particularly direct dial long distance, completely changed the game. But then computer networks elevated again, and it just keeps building. Like, I feel like we're completely connected now, but I'm sure 10 years from now, we'll be putting on goggles and stepping into a room and like being able to really work together, sort of an Iron Man situation. Uh, and, and then we'll look at it and say, yeah, now we're finally fully connected. And then 10 years later, it'll be our brains are connected. Uh, it's, it's really amazing. And the impact is hard to overstate, but you're right. The, this has been going on forever. I mean, people are, I, I picked ingenuism because ingenuity is a core human characteristic that really differentiates us as a species. And it's been this way forever. This is what made us the dominant species on the planet. Just in the past, when someone came up with something ingenious, you know, whether it's a new farming methodology or a new fishing or new, new hunting or whatever it was, it might've been you know, health related it died with them. And today- Isolated in a particular area geographically. And, may, and, and it, people have shown that you know, farming technologies moved from place to place, but they moved over centuries <laughs> because people had to travel by foot. And today they move within seconds. 
yeah, it really is a matter of degree because of the level of connection and then the speed that it can happen at. And, and the scale, I mean, I, th I really do think that Asia coming on board in the 80s, 90s and 2000s, bringing on board what, two, three billion people who really connected, engaged, productive thinking. So can we getting their ingenuity uh, on top of our own ingenuity, which again is this feedback. And so the one, one way in which I don't think it's played out completely is Africa still needs to be completely connected. There's another billion people. Asia still, there's a lot more. So it's, and, and then one of the amazing thing that, that Elon Musk is doing is he's putting these satellites into space which are going to uh, which are going to provide a high high uh, high speed internet ubiquitous across the globe so it'll be it'll be just standard everywhere uh, disconnected from servers on the ground i mean that has it'll be interesting to see how china responds to that but but you know it's going to it's going to again take us another step forward in terms of the number of people connected and the speeds at which people are connected that's right and I, my favorite examples are when you know east and west germany reunited yeah. it had a huge impact on east germany <laughs> yeah. and, and so it's bringing in people who aren't connected and connecting them it really elevates those newcomers into the network it benefits everybody mm -hmm. but it really brings prosperity to the newly connected areas and you can see it in in the koreas you know south korea is rich and productive and contributing to the world and north korea is just a problem yeah. well it's a, and it's primarily a problem for their own people who are would who basically uh are poorer than they were 100 you know 50 60 70 years ago and it's it's just horrific um so how does this process in terms of in terms of the actual technologies that play out uh, how does this process actually uh, actually work how do we actually how do, how, give some examples of companies that have actually learned from the experiences of other companies and 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 uh, and move forward and created value. Well, the the level of connection is sort of a it's a it's a complicated and nuanced idea, and it's one of the things I love about ingenuism because it's it applies to, for example, our company. How well people are connected determines how much progress in the results we produce. It also applies to us being connected externally. You know, if we're taking ideas from other places and bringing them in, we're going to be a lot more productive and, and we're going to create more ideas. And then that's a really strong, positive feedback. Uh, and for individual companies, it, it works at two levels. There's, there's generally in technology, there's a lot of internal connection between companies. And in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of external connection as well. Uh, you can think of as Silicon Valley being a bunch of companies that are all connected, universities, you know, other organizations that are all connected. And one so, of the reasons they're in Silicon Valley, right? It's one of the reasons to go to Silicon Valley is because you know you're going to benefit from those massive, you know, people have called it network effects and the massive connectivity that you get when you when you're just there physically. The people you meet, the people you have coffee with, the the the, the ideas people are generating all around you. Exactly. It's and it's a very spontaneous, hard to put your finger on effect, but it's so obvious the results that you know that it's there. And so once you have that level of connection, then and this is part of why ingenuity is exciting is is it then brings in another really important element, which is this idea of learning, learning from 
your own process, learning from other people's processes, learning what works, learning what doesn't work. And the connection is going to magnify that because it does allow you to learn from other people and other people to learn for you. So if you come up with Bell Labs, for example, if you come up with a transistor, if you keep that internal to AT&T and you use it to upgrade the communications network, it setbacks the computer industry by decades versus what actually happened is you invent the transistor, you have a monopoly on its applications in the communications network. But as part of that, you're going to have to give it up for this other nascent, much less important industry that's going to turn out to be way more important. And so by having that connection, you get a lot more progress a lot quicker. And that happens at all levels. And so if you, and, and it's, it's hard to disentangle over time what people are learning from other people versus what they're getting from other connections. Uh, a good example would be Zipcar. So Zipcar was, you know, you could argue it was eBay, but I would say Zipcar was the first sharing economy company. You know, you put the cars out there, people join, they share the cars, it makes perfect sense. You know, my car sits around, particularly in, in the pandemic, it sits around unused most of the time. So why the hell not? Just say a little bit about what Zipcar was, because my guess is a lot of people don't even remember Zipcars. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's <laughs> illustrative. Yeah. Uh, so Zipcar was founded in 2000 to be a car sharing service. So Zipcar would buy cars and they would park them. And as a member, you could use those cars. So you would go in and essentially rent a car by an hour, except it was a membership model. So it's it was like these uh, scooters that are all over Puerto Rico. Just like the scooters. Yeah, scooter sharing is car sharing, but it's at a uh, at a short distance level, which turns out to be a lot more important or a lot more optimal than Zipcar. So people didn't didn't embrace sharing cars in the same way that they embrace sharing scooters. People want to have their own car. I guess it's a state. I, I don't even know, but Zipcar was successful. Zipcar went public a decade after it was founded. They, they were a billion dollar company, but they never really took off. And they ended up being bought by Avis for about a half a billion dollars, which kind of makes sense because they were between a car rental and car ownership, car sharing. And it was just a, a, a little blip on the market, except at the same time, there was this company that had been founded called Uber. And Uber wasn't going to share cars, they were going to share rides. And it was a completely different phenomenon, way more successful because Uber had access to the smartphone. In 2000, people weren't carrying around smartphones. So it was clunky to schedule your zip car. And in 2010, you could go on your smartphone, you could see the, you get in the app, you see the Uber, you could schedule a ride. And it was quick and easy to redeploy the assets. So zip car, you would drive the car, you'd park the car, and then someone would need to be there at that spot to use it again versus Uber where the driver can go where the rides are needed. So Uber ended up being way more successful because they had learned what worked from Zipcar, but more importantly, I think, is they could leverage the smartphone, plat smartphone platform. And they ended up, you know, today Uber's a $110 billion company. So, um, so knowledge has always been, you know, layered, right? You know, we learned from the previous generation and it keeps going like that. Um, and what we have today is much more 
I think much more of this instant collaboration of, of people working on problems you know, in remote distances from far away, even competitors learning and cooperating with one another. I always, I always find it funny that, you know, a lot of the components inside an Apple, or some of the components inside an Apple, are made by Samsung, uh, you know, because Samsung makes the best of that. So why not? Right? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's truly amazing that, you know, the world in which we live today, the, 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 the availability of the information, the ability to move product from place to place, everything is so much faster and so much easier than it has been. And I think people don't really have a sense of the value of, of in that sense, globalization, both in terms of communication, but also in terms of moving, uh, moving physical, uh, physical goods. Uh, but one of the things that doesn't happen today that happened in the past, and we can give some examples of this, is that in the past, there was a lot of knowledge that was lost. Like people would invent stuff or think of stuff and it just, it would go away, partially because they died, but there were no mechanism to transmit the knowledge. Today, that's hard to imagine that happening. It might happen at the margin, but it's hard to imagine that happening certainly on scale. Uh, why do you think that is? And, and let's talk about some examples of lost knowledge. Well, you probably have uh, even better examples than I have, but I, I really like this perspective because it gets to a secondary benefit of connection. When knowledge can diffuse and be shared, not only does it get used more, but it gets more permanent. And so now people worry about, you know, if an asteroid hit the earth and 99% of humanity is wiped out, would we lose all of our technology? Right. That's a concern, but it's not if one person dies and historically, that's probably how it, how it was. I mean, it's hard because you don't know what was lost, but we do have some evidence. Like we know that there were things that the Romans developed that were lost for centuries. We know that the fact that uh, citrus treats scurvy would be discovered and then would be lost and then would be rediscovered. And, and scurvy is a terrible disease. Like there's a huge incentive when you can just pick up limes on your way out to see, to, to not lose that, but it would be continuously lost because there was no connection that would keep that knowledge circulating no matter you know, what sort of disasters happened. Yeah, I mean, the printing press, the invention of the printing press helped there, but even books are easy to burn and, and can disappear completely. I mean, one of, the, one of the examples, I think I told you about this was, uh, I read the biography, uh, a biography of Leonardo da Vinci uh, and I always had admired Leonardo da Vinci kind of vaguely and knew that he was a genius. But reading the biography was, wow, was he a genius? And it turns out that 100, 150 years later, they discovered uh, his journals and stuff. And they discovered that he had made real innovative progress in engineering and science and mathematics. That it took 50, 70 years for people to make the same discoveries because he jotted them down in his notebook. And that was it. He jotted them down in his notebook and he, he didn't do anything with it. And nobody read the notebook except for historians 100 years later. So that knowledge was lost. And instead of science progressing immediately from his discoveries on, it, somebody else had to invent it, you know, and there was a delay. It's unlike, it's, it's super, so unlikely today, given all the, the computers and the telecommunications and and books and everything else that, that something like that would happen today. I, you know, the other thing I, I, you know, you mentioned, I think you mentioned Rome, but, um, you know, 
when Rome fell, all the engineering knowledge that was in Rome, I mean, some of it was kept in Byzantine, but even then it didn't survive for very long. It basically disappeared, at least from Western Europe. Um, today, there were engineers in pretty much every country in the world, maybe not North Korea, but pretty much everywhere in the world, although North Korea has some hackers. Um, there are engineers everywhere who, who, who know how to build a bridge, who know how to build basics of building a skyscraper, who know how to do water. And I mean, the number of people with advanced engineering and scientific knowledge today is astounding. So even if you had, even if somehow the United States was wiped out by some, Okay, but there are engineers in India and China and, and, and Europe and even the Middle East as engineers. I mean, knowledge is everywhere. It's not concentrated in an elite or concentrated in a particular geographic area. And that's a, that's a massive difference uh, from, from all history. Yeah, I think that if, uh, if you think about Leonardo da Vinci, and it would be so cool to go back and you know, spend a week with him. Uh, but I imagine that he would have been incredibly excited to share his ideas yep. if it was like if he could have put them on his web page he would have posted them in a minute because that's how innovators and inventors are they, they're just excited it's why they do it yep. and it was not something that was missing from people it was something that was missing in terms of how people could interact with each other and you know if you have no airplanes and you have no telecommunications and you have no internet how do you find the people who are going to be interested? Because I'm sure most people in Leonardo da Vinci's time were not interested in speculating about helicopters. Well, and part of it was that um, it was a culture that was poor, right? So wealth matters here, right? So it's a culture where most people were too concerned about surviving, to worry about theoretical mathematical equations or, or about, about science, or uh, they were just trying to survive. And so you need to become a certain level of wealth to in, in, in enable so many people to be so interested in so many of these ideas. And that's, and, but the other part of it is, is culture, which I want to talk about because I think it's an important part of, of the ingenuism project is how do you create an environment in which ingenuity thrives and ingenuity is successful? Because part of the problem I think with Leonardo was some of his ideas would have been viewed as heretical. And, you know, there's a Catholic church there that's very controlling of ideas. Um, and and we've, we know countries like in North Korea, that, that you know, you, your idea doesn't make any difference if a bureaucrat or the, or, the, or the authoritarian in charge doesn't approve of it. So a culture that thrive, where ingenuity thrives is a culture that allows ingenuity to thrive, which leaves people free to, to think and, and act on their thoughts. Yeah, I think this is the, really the big question for the 21st century, because you know, North Korea is the low-hanging fruit, but you get the same thing in the United States. You know, we have an innovative culture, and we also have huge barriers to people applying their ingenuity. And it's not just for you know, massive new inventions that change the planet. You know, it's for everyone having the opportunity to improve their life by figuring things out and how to do them a little better. And, you know, th that is something that if we can nurture it, will make a material difference in the well-being of humanity across the board. This is not a, you know, in, ingenuity is not limited to some elite. It's amazing how in the right situation with the right support and the right opportunity, how every single human being 
has the capability of just figuring things out and improving them. And it's actually not shocking because everyone who's alive today has 10,000 generations of humans who weren't big and tough with claws and teeth. They had ingenuity. So people figure stuff out because that's how you survive. Yes. And, and, and the fact that we're still here means that we, you know, that, that we are equipped with the tool, our, our minds, uh, it, you know, to solve these problems and to, and to survive and to thrive uh, in this context. So, so yeah, I think figuring out the culture, figuring out the kind of environment and, uh, you know, so, so obviously we, we need the freedom in order to do this. But part of it is, you know, we've talked about the differences between the U.S. and, and Europe, for example, and the, the, the fact that U.S. is so much more entrepreneurial and there's so much more. I mean, all of these companies we mentioned are American companies and there's some, not to say there's no innovation in Europe, clearly there is, but it's just not on the same scale. Um, in some respects, there's quite a bit of innovation in China, uh, you know, maybe because the, 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 of, of, of some cultural elements, but certainly the difference between the US and Europe is worth talking about. What, what, is, what is different that makes in, in, ingenuity more prevalent in the US? Well, I don't think that it's, I, th I think inherently there's no difference. Yeah. I think that people are born with a brain. Yeah. And I think that it is from a cultural perspective, it's a matter of how do you treat failure, which is something that we're going to take a really significant look at. How do you treat success? And how do you view new ideas? Mm -hmm. And, you know, Europe has a great history and a pedigree that, you know, we don't have and we're not attached to in the United States. Uh, and so there's a sort of demand for change here while there's a resistance to change. And it's a, it's a huge mistake. Uh, it, it has historically been a mistake, but it's a huge mistake today because one of the things that came out of the ingenuism work is that when you get connected, all of these other things matter so much more mm -hmm. because now an idea doesn't just stay in a small town and affect a hundred people, it spreads to the entire planet and infects billions of people and vice versa. You can, so when you get connected, if you don't nurture ingenuity, there's a much bigger cost than when everyone was operating in small silos or in small groups. And so I don't know what Europe's priorities are or you know, how that culture can change, but I do know that it's going to be increasingly costly for people to first stay disconnected like in North Korea, but also to not take on nurturing ingenuity, not, and at all levels, not just at, at companies, but at the entire societal level. It is interesting. I wonder what you think of this. I just thought of this. There's a sense in which though, Europe can free ride off of American ingenuity, right? Mm -hmm. Because of the connection, mm -hmm. they can keep their conservative kind of uh, failure, resistant uh, culture and wait until to see what's successful in the US and then mimic it, which I think is, I think happens in a lot of places around the world where you have these more conservative cultures. So, so that is interesting, that connection allows you to benefit from the ingenuity without actually being uh, part of, part of the, the development of that ingenuity. Yeah, if you think about it, when you connect 
ideas, if one group has zero ideas and you connect it to a group that has lots of ideas, I'm not claiming that a Europe, uh, I think the first scooter sharing company was in Europe, that if you connect that, then the benefits go to the, the less innovative, the, the less established. Now, the question is what happens going forward? Well, you're always lagging behind and the gap is bigger, but you still benefit from the progress. But you would have much bigger win-win if oh, yeah. it worked in both directions. And it's it's the question for the 21st century because again, you know, I think that the US in particular Silicon Valley does better than most areas of the world, but I do not think that we nurture ingenuity in the way that's really possible. No, I agree. I agree completely. And and I mean, and we talk about Europe, but even Europe is not a monolith, obviously, and some countries, some subcultures within Europe are much better than others. But a big part of the difference between the two cultures is their attitude towards failure. So I want to talk a little bit about failure. One of the stunning things about Silicon Valley, I think we discovered pretty early on, is, is the number of kind of serial entrepreneurs, but serial entrepreneurs that have not necessarily been successful, right? In most businesses, if you fail, you're not going to be in that business again. But in Silicon Valley, failure doesn't mean that much, right? That's right. And it's accepted widely, if not really thought through. It's thought through at the venture capital level. VCs know that they're going to invest in companies that are going to fail. They spend zero time bemoaning the failures that happen in their portfolio uh, or listing them. Uh, there were some VCs that, that put eBay on their wall in the 90s because they hadn't invested. And they were worried about missing the big winners, not participating in the failures. And so Silicon Valley refined the attitude towards failure. It became acceptable. And it, in fact, it became a recognized part of the process. And if there's a VC, you know that you're going to have portfolio companies fail for all sorts of reasons. And it's an infinite number of things that can go wrong. Then you aren't going to hold it against the entrepreneurs who are in those failures in the same way the entrepreneurs are not going to hold it against the investors. And it, it turns into a really powerful way of making progress because you can try a lot of things and VCs invest in a lot of startups in Silicon Valley and you can go in small and you can learn quickly what's really got some, some progress. You know, most uh, companies go into Y Combinator, get a very small amount of money. They give up a small amount of ownership and, and there are lots of benefits to it because they're getting connected to other companies in Y Combinator in a way that's more uh, rigorous and deeper than happens just in the Valley generally. But what you really get is an opportunity to figure out is this idea something that makes sense. Because if it doesn't, if it's not going to go, then whether you're the, on the investor side or the entrepreneur side, you don't want to spend a lot of time or money or passion or energy on that idea. So having an opportunity to try lots of things, let most of them fail, and then really focus on, on the ones that are working is what makes Silicon Valley work. Because it's, it's a little crazy, right? You're a VC, you're going to invest in startups, startups fail, and you're expected to you know, triple your investor's money, quadruple your investor's money. It's like if I gave you a bunch of money and said, you're on, go invest this, but first I'm going to burn 80% of it. Uh, you, like, how in the hell am I going to do this? And Silicon Valley does that. And, and part of what happens there is that, that the entrepreneurs themselves, you know, so if, so if you're an entrepreneur, you start a company, you, 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 you grow it, but it ultimately fails. 
the assumption of the venture capitalist, I think, is, okay, well, you've learned something from that, right? It's an experience. Something happened there. And you're likely second time to be actually better at it than you were first time because you've got this new experience now and you've, you've, you've hopefully introspected, studied what, you, what didn't work. Maybe it's luck, but maybe you did something wrong or maybe it's like uh, the difference between Zipcar and Uber. Maybe you've got a better idea on how to do it. And they'll invest, more likely to invest in a failed, in, a, in somebody who had a startup and failed and somebody completely new, which is a very different mentality than I think in the past or in other cultures uh, that are around it. it you know, we, here the idea of learning from failure is really being embraced. And, and you have a great example from, um, from SpaceX and how they've internalized this idea of learning from failure. Yeah, it's, it's very, failure is very nuanced. Uh, and the attitude towards failure in Silicon Valley is, is hugely important and core to how the Valley works. And it just sort of scratches the surface because I agree, you know, we talked to most VCs, they would rather invest with an experienced entrepreneur whose first company failed than a new entrepreneur who has not done anything yet. And it's more of a can't hurt might help. Like they, they definitely learn things, dozens of things, but there are thousands of things that can go wrong. So it's not bulletproof. Sure. And it's important not to penalize it. With SpaceX, when they're launching rockets, the Starship rocket goes up and they're gonna try and land it and they fully expect it's gonna blow up. You know, that's really cool on a lot of levels. But what's the most important is that they are doing it to learn so that the next launch is more likely to succeed and the next launch is more likely to succeed. That's not quite what VCs do. It's not like they first fail a lot and then they win a lot later. Eventually the Starship rocket is going to go up and it's going to come down and it's never going to blow up. Mm -hmm. uh, but that iterative learning where you have the opportunity to do something that you know is likely to fail and that you won't be penalized for it, whether you're an entrepreneur or you're an engineer at SpaceX, that's really important because you think about SpaceX and Blue Origin, they've made so much progress so fast in really making space accessible at, in an economic way relative to NASA. And NASA's done amazing things, but NASA is not a culture of we're going to fail and fail and fail until we succeed. It's a culture of we're going to figure it out. We're going to get it exactly right. We're going to make it bulletproof. And that can work, but it's very, very slow. Yeah. And, you know, I think about somebody like, um, you know, from a, as, a, as a kind of failed entrepreneurs, you think about somebody like Steve Jobs, who, and this is an example of somebody learning from the failure, right? He, he, he is incredibly successful at Apple but ultimately screws up as, as, a, as a leader and is fired. Um, then starts, you remember next? Yeah. Um, I mean, those black computers, I mean, they, they looked cool, but they were complete bust. But as part of that, an operating system was born that later became part of the Mac, uh, the Mac operating system. And in the meantime, he invests in Pixar and probably learns some things at Pixar in terms of how to work with people and, and, and ingenuity and creativity and all of that. And then lands up back at Apple, takes all the things he's learned and creates maybe the most successful in terms of the, the, the fast growth company ever. Uh, putting all those pieces together. It, it, it's, and that's kind of, that's, 
that's a that's a big example of I think of a lot of little things that happen in the valley all the time. Yeah, if you think about Pixar, uh, you know, you could argue uh, that Steve Jobs early both created Apple and almost killed Apple. Uh, and there's a book called Creativity Inc. on Pixar, and it goes through the Pixar's, from Pixar's perspective, the experience of being a Steve Jobs company. Yeah. And it's clear that he could have, like, if, if um, he had indulged sort of his natural <laughs> default personality, that he could have screwed Pixar up. And he didn't. And... Yeah. It, to his benefit and everyone's benefit, the world's benefit, you know, millions of kids benefit, like everybody won out of that. And I agree with you, if he hadn't had the experience of the 90s with Apple, it's likely he would have had to learn it with Pixar. And that, that would just, that would be a, a shame. And it's always happening. So I, we don't want to negate uh, the 90s because you don't learn without getting in situations that you can't handle. And sometimes you screw them up. You don't screw them up the next time. That's what's important. And we see this in companies. You know, the, the framework for ingenuism is you get connected and then you start learning rapidly because then the benefits of the learning are so magnified. And you learn rapidly by really pushing yourself, pushing the envelope. And you do things that, that fail. If you look at Amazon, Amazon has introduced a lot of products, high profile products, fire phones, they're just a complete flops and they disappear like that. Mm -hmm. They, they buy companies and if it works out, it works out. If it doesn't work out, they shut it down. They sell them. And that sort of, we're going to try things. And if it works, we're going to ride it and make a, a gazillion dollars. And if it doesn't, well, the downside is capped. That's really important to the idea of ingenuism. So within the context of ingenuous, we're calling that exploration, kind of the, the testing, the trial, sometimes fail, sometimes succeed, constant learning, constant error correction, which we see, we see a lot of companies uh, do, but uh, to what extent do you think that is, that is new or is what's new really the speed at which it's happening? I think it's a combination of three things. The two things that you said, um, that it's happening more because companies are recognizing that this is an opportunity. So you have books like The Lean Startup, which become sort of a Bible in Silicon Valley, that if you get to a certain point where you can start learning, whether you're a VC investing in a firm or a, a company investing in a product, if you get to that point, then you have huge upside and you'll be able to figure out the downside. And so there's a recognition that this is important. And then the speed at which you can learn is accelerated by just the amount of information, the amount of data that's being created. So you can see success and failure much more quickly. And that's one of the challenges of a VC, right? Uh, we invest in venture funds. It's even more of a challenge because you invest in a venture fund and you don't know how well that's doing for six or seven years. And so the feedback loop is definitely there, but it's, it's slow compared to what we see today. But I think that the most important thing in, in terms of exploration and learning is that Silicon Valley is not just creating a new formula, like, okay, we're gonna do a minimum viable product and we're always gonna do that. Because once you create a formula, like this is how it's always done, then you trim off all the other possible things that you just have no idea 
how impactful they, they could be. So when Google goes out and says, look, it's, we're fine with our engineers spending one day a week working on their own projects, that's an acknowledgement of we don't know what they should be working on. And they might, and it's worth it because you might get Gmail out of it. Yep. Or if you, if you think about Google's genesis, I mean, nobody was trying to create Google. Back in the 90s, search was terrible and it was done. Like it was as good as it was gonna get and it was too bad, but you know, it was still way better than going to the library. And then these two computer science PhDs at Stanford, you know, they're, they're doing the same thing. I am 100% sure they're struggling with why the hell do we not have better search? And they just have an idea of, well, maybe we could, it's computer science, but it's completely unrelated to their academic careers. And they create PageRank and then that becomes Google and then Google changes the world. Uh, and that sort of exploration where you're not trying to go in a particular direction. And I think that's the risk of really getting into, okay, iterative learning, we're gonna do iterative learning. That's what we're gonna do. Uh, that's important, like that's really important, but it's the stuff that's adjacent that you have to be open to discovering as you go. That's the real benefit of exploration. So ingenuism looks at, at kind of the, the effect of connectivity, the effects of exploration, the, the effects of, of culture. And, you know, and we're, we're going to be as part of this project, we're going to looking deeper into all of these elements. Uh, so what, what's kind of the goal? What, what do you want to achieve by, by, by doing all this work? Well, when, when I first looked at it from the perspective of, well, I've got this whole body of work that we did on, on banks. We published papers and then we created a fund. And that's been a career long. And I've got this whole body of work on Silicon Valley that is, I've always treated it more like I dabble in it and I teach a class and, and people think it's cool. And I've always noticed that when we talk to people, they're more interested in talking about that than they are talking about banks. Because yeah. uh, it is, it's... And then I started to, when I started to look at it more, it was more of a, well, wait a minute, the world is, is world's pretty messed up, right? And it's always been messed up. I'm not making a statement like it's more messed up today, but there's a conversation about like, how are, are we going to, are we going to save the planet? How are we going to stop people from getting rich and so that we can save the planet? There's a real conversation of scarcity. And, and I get it because for most of human history, including most of the 20th century, uh, there was either scarcity or we were doing whatever we could at, at whatever cost we could to eliminate scarcity because it made human beings way better off. But in my lifetime, we've gone from like people are starving on the planet and people are still starving, but we, it's not a big conversation because We've gone to more people are dying from being obese than are dying from starvation. It's completely transformed. And that conversation hasn't expanded into our daily life and view of the world. But it's there. If you think about what is Google doing, Google is making information accessible and easy to create. Google is creating something without having a factory or having to cut down a forest or, and I have no problems with cutting down forests and making factories. Don't get me wrong. And if 
I had a choice on how people were going to pro make progress and how we're going to make the world a better place for humans. I'd rather leave the forest and, and forget the factory, given that choice. And that's where we are. And so the goal for me is to change the conversation, to, to really create a movement around ingenuity and the importance of ingenuity and the importance of opportunity, the opportunity for people to apply their ingenuity and to have sort of guardrails around the conversations that we have about anything, whether it's economics or politics or environment, or that there are certain things that we're just not going to sacrifice. We are not going to sacrifice people's opportunity to apply their ingenuity. We're not going to sacrifice their freedom to connect with people, to collaborate with people, to make their life better by using their ideas and combining them with other people's ideas. And when I look through it in that lens, there's just a lot in the world, in the United States including, where we are suppressing people's ability to make their life better. And what we don't recognize or we don't explicitly recognize is that's making us all dramatically worse off. It's not that this person could be better, is that if we bring them in and let them contribute to this, I'll call it a global network of minds, mm -hmm. then that's going to make everyone better off. And if they're if they were completely free riding, it doesn't take away from anyone else that they're using other people's ingenuity to make their lives better. It's that's it can't hurt, and it could have huge impact. And the fact is, almost every person. <laughs> If they're just built, they've evolved in a way where they want to contribute, they want to improve things, and then that can, that can spread. And so my goal is that we stop talking about zero-sum games, we stop talking about scarcity, and we start talking about what are the rules of the game such that we allow everyone to make the world a better place. And if we can accomplish that, I... I would be super. Yeah, cool. <laughs> that would be that would be the tits. Yeah, yeah, but but yes. I mean, I think I think one of the things that really hurts, you know, the field of economics is it defines itself in terms of scarcity, instead of defining itself in terms of kind of win-win, trade and and production. Production meaning the creation of value in the broader sense, and and really reorienting a whole discussion around win-win relationships and around production and creation and building and the requirements, which, which are all about human ingenuity is what it's all about. All right, so we're gonna be, we're gonna be doing, in order to get these ideas out there, we're gonna be doing um, uh, tons of interviews. Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking a lot more. We're gonna be doing a lot of research. We're gonna be digging, digging deep into some of these issues uh, with data, with stories, um, publishing a newsletter publishing essays um, and really trying to engage in a conversation uh, in the world out there uh, and trying to change the conversation that people are having about progress and about the future and about just changing kind of the, the attitude. I, I like this idea of it's people talk about zero sum and scarcity. There's way too much of that when everything around us proves that it's, it's the other way. There's win-win and ever-growing opportunities. Yeah, if you think about the these companies that have created trillions of dollars of value, I'm just I'm a finance guy, so I'm measuring it as market value. And they have they created trillions of dollars. They, it, it's astonishing. And 
it's small compared to the value that they've created outside of the market. That is, you know, people line up to buy Apple's new products because they value them so much. And everyone uses Google and almost nobody pays for it, at least explicitly. Uh, and so the, there's this win-win embedded, but unrecognized. And if we can bring that to the forefront and have it be such that everyone has an opportunity to, to build on their own ingenuity, that I think the results, I mean, we, we've already seen what the results are in our constrained world. Yep. It's hard to imagine what the results could be in an unconstrained world. Yeah, it really is. It really is. I mean, economists could call that, but I think it misses the, you know, consumer surplus. But it, that sounds kind of dull. And But just think about, I mean, I, the, people should think about how their lives have improved because of Apple and Google and just, and how much they pay for it. it it's, it's a fraction of the benefits of their life. I, I like to do this thing in my lectures and ask people, raise my iPhone, which I always use. What is this? Right, because we think of it as a phone, but nobody uses it as a phone. I mean, how many? Almost nobody uses it actually as a phone. It's a communication device, but it's also an entertainment device, and it's also a camera. And it's, I mean, and the list goes on and on and on. And we carry it in our pocket, and it enhances our lives in ways that we completely take for granted and can't imagine living without. But that are just that what was it twelve years ago, right? It's a 12 year old product. It's truly, a truly, it's truly stunning how much human life has improved over the last 12 years and people haven't even noticed. I wanna give you one more example before we wrap up and, and that it relates to Amazon, but Amazon on sort of one of these adjacent paths. So Amazon's you know, building out in the 1990s, the dominant online retail platform and they're figuring things out. They're figuring out how to bring in other uh, retailers, which was genius because the conversation in retail is always about scarcity. It's not scarcity of products, it's scarcity of shelf space. So when Walmart's trying to figure out how to be the dominant retailer, which they were up until the uh, late 90s, they are looking at, they, they just have to get really good at getting the right product on the right shelf at the right time. And if they can do that better than everyone else, they're going to win. And that's what they were doing. They did. Yeah. Uh, and Jeff Bezos looks at it and says, well, wait a minute. When you go online, there's no limit to the shelf space. And what's really going to make a difference is your selection. You know, people go to the mall because they can pick up everything. And people go to Walmart because they can pick up everything. When they come to Amazon, they're really going to be able to pick up everything. And the first you try and offer a lot of products, but then very quickly you say, well, if we connect with other retailers and let them offer products, we'll just have more products than everyone and everyone will just come to Amazon. Now, if you're Walmart, your head would explode when you first try and think about that because the idea you would take your scarce shelf space and that which gives you your advantage and let Target come in and have some of it, it's be crazy. But then Amazon never stopped. And at some point they probably will. Um, you know, Jeff Bezos is retiring and Congress is calling them in front of them to yell at them. Like, like it's, a, it's tough to be this successful in the world. And that's part of the conversation I like to change. But it's more important at the, at the ground level. If Amazon had been stopped early, then they never would have had the idea of creating cloud computing for their internal applications. 
you know, it's, it's tough to run a online store when in the holidays, your demand spikes way up and at other times it's low. And so creating something that was flexible and powerful and modular that you could plug into, it, it just was something that made sense for Amazon. And they created the precursor to AWS in 2002 internally. And then they launched AWS in 2006. And nobody was thinking about cloud computing except for Amazon. And they were a retailer. Like and they how- got into it to solve an internal problem. They got into it not because they thought this would take over the world, but they had a problem. They had a problem. And once they solved it, they were like, everyone should want this. It was the second real sharing economy idea, you know, much more important than car sharing, sharing computing resources. And no one was thinking about it. And I know that because it took Microsoft four or five years, Google even longer to get into the market. Like they had to start from zero. They could copy Amazon and it still took them years, which in technology is lifetimes. And so AWS, if, if Amazon hadn't come up with it, if Amazon had been limited to, you can only do retail, you can't go into these adjacent areas, then I don't know, at some point, Oracle or Microsoft or Google, someone would have introduced it, but it yep. would have been, I don't know, 10 years later. And then the pandemic would have hit and there would have been no Zoom because without AWS, you, you don't have Zoom. Right. Uh, it, it is unimaginable what 2020 would have been like if we had prevented ingenuity from creating the things that allowed us to get through 2020 with a relatively minimal disruption despite shutting the country down and a, a quality of life that was dramatically lower but way better than you would have expected if we shut things down. I mean, shutting down is like eliminating connection but we all stay connected, but only because we had allowed these technologies to develop over the previous decades. And it's amazing because it, it also was the year where there was probably more criticism of Amazon than any other year, right? In front of Congress and, and the guillotine in front of Jeff Bezos' house. I mean, the whole thing. And here was the company literally making it possible in multiple dimensions for us to actually survive and, 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 and do okay during this horrific time. So it's it, the injustice and the stupidity of it. Yeah, if you connect the dots uh, from Congress being able to be in session via Zoom, yeah. which was a lot only existed because of ADOS, or it might've existed, but it would have completely crashed and failed in March of 2020. Uh, yeah, I would have said thank you at least before yelling at them. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. All right, uh, thanks Robert. Uh, this has been fun, and I'm sure we'll do this again. And uh, uh, this is the first in many interviews we plan to do. And you know, look look for a bunch of different content that this ingenuism project is going to be producing in the days, weeks, years to come. Bye. Uh, everybody.